You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A universe of Hollywood storytelling and intrigue awaits you now. Unlock the secret history of Hollywood by going to patreon.com slash secret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. By now, the Warner Brothers had become important players in the emerging world of the movies. The Cascade Theatre had played to capacity audiences every day. But when Thomas Edison implemented the Edison Trust patents during the first decade of the 1900s, essentially placing an exorbitant tax on the showing of his and his partner's rather unimaginative movies, he unknowingly lit a touch paper amongst America's theatre owners. By this time, the Warner Brothers had expanded into the business of the film exchange. Buying up copies of movies wherever they could, they would rent out films to theatres all over the country on a weekly basis. They charged a pittance, but the high demand for fresh movies meant that the exchange was never short of orders, and the business was soon turning over a huge profit. Desperate to squash this enterprise, Thomas Edison included in his list of trust guidelines the rule that all exchanges are required to have a license to distribute trust-created films. Without a license, the Warners were forced to smuggle the films to theatres under topcoats, wrapped in newspapers, or packed in the secret compartments of suitcases. More often than not, though, Goons hired by Edison would discover the films and confiscate them. With their supply running dangerously low, Harry and Sam Warner approached the General Film Company, the last movie studio they knew of that hadn't signed to the trust. Unfortunately, they were a day too late. The General Film Company had signed to the Edison Trust just 24 hours earlier and refused to sell the Warners any more films. A few weeks later, during the fall of 1910, a man walked into the Warner offices and sat down without being announced. Boys, I'm from the General Film Company, and we're buying your exchange for $52,000. But we don't want to sell, said Harry. The well has dried up, the man smiled. You won't get any more films from us or any other studio. We're recalling all the prints that are out there. Be realistic, won't you? What are you going to exchange, exactly? Buttons? We have distribution all over Pittsburgh, said Sam. The whole outfit's worth nearly a quarter million. Nevertheless, the man said, we'll give you $52,000. Ten in cash, twelve in stock, and then ten a year over the next three years. Let me get this straight, growled Albert. You're going to strong arm us out of our own office and then run your own exchange from here. That is correct, the man said. Despite the unfairness of the situation, the boys were licked and they knew it. 
They could refuse the offer and watch as their remaining stock was slowly confiscated, or sell for a pittance and try to think of something else. Suppose we sell, said Harry. How about letting us run the operation here for you? The man mulled it over for a moment and then nodded. Okay, tell you what, he said. You sign the papers, then you come to New York next week. I'll fix it up with old man Kennedy. The following week, Harry, Sam, Albert and young Jack arrived at the offices of J.J. Kennedy, the president of the General Film Company, and took a seat in front of his vast mahogany desk while he chewed on the last of a stubby cigar and sighed. I'm very sorry, boys, said Kennedy, but I've just completed an arrangement to have someone else manage the Pittsburgh office. Jack, the blood flying to his head, leapt up from his seat. You skunk, he said. You had us come all the way here. Quiet, Jack, snapped Harry. Mr. Kennedy, are you saying that we don't get the job? That's right, said Kennedy. Albert glanced at his brothers and then said, Very well, Mr. Kennedy, then we'll stay right here in New York and put you out of business. Kennedy looked them over and smiled. Personally, I wish you the best of luck, he said. But in business, I hope you break your necks. Whispers had reached Harry of a defiant little European who'd flung a hat full of curse words in Edison's face and had started making his own movies. The idea of producing movies instantly appealed to bright-eyed Jack, who himself was an avid movie fan. We could do it ourselves, he said, when Harry told him about Carl Lemley. We could do that too. I want you home, Jackie, said Harry. Dad needs help at the store. You have to stop dancing around like a tick and earn some damn money for this family. Jack's spirit drained from his face. Please don't send me home, Harry. You'll do as you're told, said Harry firmly. Harry, said Sam, let's not send Jack home just yet. God knows we all need a kick in the pants sometimes and Jack's good for that stuff. Instinctively, Jack moved behind Sam and placed a grateful hand on his back. We can talk about sacrificial lambs later, said Albert. For now, are we making movies or what? They'd need to be cheap, said Harry. How do we make them cheap, said Albert. We don't even know where to start with this. So what did D.W. Griffith know before he started cranking out films, said Sam. All we need is a camera. And a story, said Jack. What about Edison and his trust, said Albert. Harry began to pace slowly around the room. I was in St. Louis, and there's an old abandoned foundry that has enough space to use as a studio. We'd need money for film stock, a camera, rent on the foundry. Between the four of us, we ought to be able to dig up the dough. So we're film producers, said Jack excitedly. Harry looked around at his brothers. I guess we are. What do we call ourselves, said Jack. How about Warner Productions? Warner... Uh, Warner Film Productions Company. Warner Production Film Company. Productions. Harry smiled. How about Warner Features? Scraping together as much as they could, the brothers rented the foundry, bought a cheap camera, 
as much film stock as they could locate and began work on a cheap two-wheeler written by Jack and Sam entitled The Covered Wagon, the brief tale of a group of settlers trying to cross a desert and being terrorized by a gang of bloodthirsty Indians. Sam took on directing duties while Jack headed up production, which meant hiring actors, writing the smallest checks he could, and even donning an Indian headdress to act in a few scenes. Harry and Albert returned to Youngstown and awaited Sam and Jack's masterpiece. A few weeks later, Sam loaded the covered wagon into the projector and screened it for Harry and Albert, who watched with a pained expression as the clunky nonsense played out before them. When the lights went up, Albert shook his head and said, I can't sell that. Soap I can sell, pots and pans I can sell, junk I can't sell. It's not that bad, snapped Sam. Jack jumped to his feet and glared at Harry. How in the hell are we supposed to make a good movie on the shoestring budget you gave us? How do we get more shoestrings to make better movies if we can't sell the first ones, said Harry. He got up and looked at the reel of film that had cost them everything they had. Well, he said, our film isn't very good, but it's ours. As Warner Features, we'll just distribute it ourselves. But how, said Sam. Lemley, said Harry. We'll follow Carl Lemley. We'll go west. To escape the clutches of Thomas Edison and his attorneys, Carl Lemley and his associates had journeyed to California, where the state laws that supported the enforcement of the Edison Trust could not legally be enforced. In a small town called Hollywood, these defiant few had established a thriving community of filmmakers that was fast becoming the heart of movie production for the United States. From here, film exchanges could operate in freedom, distributing the movies being made every day in the cloudless climate of California. From here, the Warner Brothers could run their operations in peace, without the heavy-handed tinkering of Edison's thugs. But relocating to the West was an expensive endeavor. We called in the old clothes man to pay off our debts, said Sam. When our monetary worth was totaled, we found we had a dollar sixty-five between the four of us. The only asset the brothers owned was the covered wagon, their cheap and nasty hope for the future. But without the means to begin in Hollywood, things looked bleak. It was over dinner with the rest of the family, around the long table behind the grocery store, where Benjamin Warner invested again in the future of his sons. He pushed towards them a thick envelope containing the $400 he and Pearl had saved since they'd arrived in America. Quite literally, all the money they had in the world. Whatever we have today, said Harry some years later, when taking stock of the Warner Brothers empire, was built on the $400 our parents gave us. With the investment from their parents, the Warners set up a new exchange in Los Angeles, followed by one in San Francisco. The first film farmed out to exhibitors was The Covered Wagon, which, despite its shaky heritage, saw a modest profit. As their earnings began to grow, they invested in theatres, purchasing one after another in which to play the films they were renting from the studios just down the road. From here, 
They set to adapting stage plays for the screen, usually a four to six reel. These were either met with disdain or indifference due to the subjects being chosen. Harry and Albert favored the melodramas and romances, while Sam and Jack seemed eager to create their own stories, fast-paced westerns and thrillers, or tales of damsels in distress. Harry had fallen in love with a poem entitled Passions Inherited, a flowery, sentimental verse about family values and the deep-rooted love of man for woman. Jack and Sam read through it and turned up their noses. But Harry, keen to assert his authority over his younger brothers, insisted that Passions Inherited would be their next movie. To further annoy his brothers, Harry passed them over as production crew and hired a British director, Gilbert P. Hamilton, to make the thing. Hamilton's fee was $15,000, all the ready cash that the brothers had at the time. But Harry duly paid, expecting Hamilton's talent to produce something truly memorable. Shooting was scheduled to begin the week after, and Harry relaxed in the hopes of a colossal hit for Warner Features. A week later, he received a wire from Hamilton requesting another $5,000 to cover extra costs that had been incurred by the shoot. Eager to please Hamilton, Harry ran around town and scraped together the cash. Another two weeks passed, and Harry had received no further word on Hamilton's progress. He called in Jack and instructed him to journey to the shoot location and find out what was going on. Why can't you go? asked Jack. Because I'm needed around here. But this is your baby. I'm the boss, Jack, and you'll do as I say, said Harry firmly. Chin up, Jackie, said Sam, when the conversation was relayed to him later that day. The older brother is always the grouch. Jack drove to the shoot to find that the production was a ghost town. He found Hamilton and the movie's lead actress bedded down in a tent. Parked a few feet away was a brand new car that Hamilton had purchased with Harry's cash. Hamilton leapt from his bed naked as a jaybird and ran after Jack, who stamped angrily back to his own car. But, but Mr. Warner, he stammered, you'll be hearing from our lawyers, said Jack. Your girlfriend in there, she may like being fucked over, but we certainly don't. But the movie's finished, said Hamilton. I just need to film the ending. The five reels that Hamilton had shot had been sent to Los Angeles already. Jack tracked it down to find that Hamilton was telling the truth. It just needed a final shot of the lover's embrace. He duplicated a kiss from a scene at the center of the film, spliced it onto the end, and they had their picture. The $20,000 epic Passions Inherited that when released, sank without a trace at theatres. But while their movie-making efforts weren't making them rich men, they were certainly getting them noticed. They received an offer to sell out from the general film company, who offered them a quarter of a million in cash, plus jobs for each of them at the salary of $50,000 a year. But the Warner dream, held by all four of the brothers, did not involve them working under a boss. The brothers were masters of their own destinies, high-stakes gamblers in their own futures. The offer was politely rejected. A Los Angeles newspaper at the time wrote that the career of the Warner Brothers reads like a combination of the Revolutionary War and Ireland's struggle for freedom. Another read, 
You can make brains do a lot of tricks with a good bankroll, but one thing is certain. You can't monopolize brains when they're coupled with nerve and the desire for independence. Or to be brief, you can't keep a good man down. The Warner Brothers have certainly proved that. It wasn't long before the successes began to outpace the failures. Sam would bring the scripts to Jack, and together they'd sift through them, looking for treasures. Any they deemed fit would be sent to Harry and Albert, who had the final say. Here's one, said Sam one morning, throwing the fluttering script to Jack. It's called Open Your Eyes, all about soldiers. Must be about getting up in the morning. Jack flicked through it quickly and grinned. It's about the clap, he said. No kidding, replied Sam. What the hell does the title open your eyes mean then? Look before you leap, winked Jack. By 1917, Warner Features had established itself as a thriving minnow in a pool of bigger fish. But a breakout smash hit still eluded them. Passing a bookstore one day, Sam noticed a title in the window that seemed to be getting lots of attention. My Four Years in Germany by Ambassador James W. Gerard told the story of Gerard's experiences in Europe before the First World War, where he'd exhausted himself in trying to prevent the conflict. Dramatically written and sensationally presented, it had everything. Conflict, action, suspense, grandiose speeches, and most importantly, contemporary relevance. The war had been raging for three years by now, and people were more interested than ever, not only in the day-to-day -day occurrences, but in how it had all begun. Harry agreed with Sam that the book was a viable property, perhaps the breakout hit they'd been looking for, but was sure that such a famous title would already be optioned by a film studio. There was also the little matter of cash flow. While the exchanges were making money, it was all being immediately invested back into movie production, which was proving costly. On a whim, Harry sent along a telegram to Gerard to ask if he could negotiate for the rights if they'd not been sold already. To his surprise, Gerard replied almost immediately and invited him to Washington to talk about it. The pitch began a few days later in Gerard's office. Mr. Ambassador, said Harry, film is the great founder of peace. When people understand each other, they need not fight. I feel it is our patriotic duty to the thousands of Americans who cannot read to make a motion picture of your book. That's an admirable notion, son, replied Gerard, but I'm wondering why I should go with your studio and not the others. The others, sir? Yes, said Gerard, picking up a sheaf of letters and scanning through them. I have an offer here from a Mr. Lewis Selznick and one here from William Fox at Fox Studios, which has an actual check with it. If you don't mind me asking, sir, said Harry, how much is the check for? $75,000, said Gerard. Harry's breath stopped. 75000 he said. That's right. A lot of money, said Gerard. Harry made a mental calculation in his head. $75,000 was actually ten times more cash than the Warners could lay their hands on at the moment. Wearing his finest poker face, Harry leaned slightly forward in his chair and said, I believe, Mr. Gerard, 
that I'm in a position to make you a better offer. Harry stood and began to tell the tale of his family, of their flight from Poland, of the children lost, the betrayal in Canada, their many starts and ends in business, their endeavors and sacrifices, of their parents' investment in them, and of the bond that stitched the four brothers permanently and irrevocably together. As my father often tells us, said Harry, together we are strong, we are unbreakable, and we will succeed in this business as no one has ever succeeded before. The Warner Brothers will become a major force in the movie industry. Today, we are not a large company. Perhaps that is for the best, as we can provide the intense, personalized effort your book needs. Sir, we can't offer a lot of money, frankly, we don't have it. But we can assign you a good percentage of the profits. Gerard frowned and studied Harry's face, then reached down and lit a cigar. And how much, he said, is your offer, Mr. Warner? Taking a breath, Harry held his nerve and played the biggest gamble of his life. We'll give you $50,000, he said plus 20% of the profits. Gerard thought in silence. He hadn't wanted to tell Harry Warner, but he'd already decided that morning to go with Fox and their $75,000. But Harry's impassioned speech had touched him, and somewhere down in his heart, past the room that dealt with monetary concerns, was a corner in himself that knew his book, this work that he'd poured his soul into, would be nurtured and cared for by this boy and his brothers. I would have to see the, uh, what do you call it, the scenario, said Gerard. Harry exhaled. They arranged to meet in a month's time where Harry would show Gerard their detailed plans for the movie. If he liked them, the project was theirs. From Mark Dintonfass, a cohort and one-time business partner of Carl Lemley, Harry and Albert managed to extract the investment of $28,000. And from a myriad other benefactors, the brothers scraped up the rest, plus enough to cover production costs. By now, they were up to their ears in debt and promises. If the film failed, financially, they were not only finished, they were destitute, and there would be no second chances this time. No gold watches or money in envelopes. The sticks would be broken, no matter how hard they bunched together. Gerard and Harry met on a train bound for Montana, where Gerard was spending his vacation. To the rhythm of the train's wheels as they clacked along the miles of track, Harry watched nervously as Gerard read the script, written by screenwriter Charles Logue, whom Harry had hired to do a professional job. As Gerard finished the final line on the last page, he took off his glasses and said, Mr. Warner, I hereby give you consent to make the picture. A contract was signed on the spot, and at the next station stop, they had it formally notarized at a fee of 50 cents, 
I'll toss you to see who pays the notary fee, said Harry to Gerard. The coin was flipped and Gerard called heads. The coin landed tails. Don't worry, said Harry. You'll get it back. I know I will, said Gerard, who boarded the train to continue his journey, along with a check for $50,000. Under the direction of William Nye, the production rattled ahead with brisk efficiency. Word began to leak that the brothers might actually be onto something, and my four years in Germany soon became the talk of Hollywood. To save costs, they'd cleverly decided to include documentary footage depicting the violence and brutality of the First World War, thereby unknowingly setting in place a trademark that would soon become their own a film that delighted in blurring the lines between fact and fiction. Hard-hitting entertainment ripped straight out of the day's headlines. During production on the film, William Fox sent along an offer to buy the picture from them at a price of $373,000, a sum that would not only rescue them from the financial mire, but make them very rich men. But the Warners were playing for more than money. They wanted the prestige of a hit, their name on the lips of audiences, to establish themselves as players in the Dust Bowl of Hollywood, where their flag had already been planted in the soil. Politely, the offer was refused. A week later, while huddled in conference late one night, their office was visited by a steely-eyed man who introduced himself as someone with important connections. It's my intention heard, as well as that of the interests I represent, to offer a cash settlement to buy the completed screen version of my four years in Germany. You're a little late, said Sam. We've already turned down a nice big offer. The man grinned. Oh, <laughs> I'm not going to make you a big offer, he said. I'm making you a little offer. A stupidly little offer. Thing is, I think you'll take it. Because you look like healthy guys, and healthy guys like to stay healthy. Am I right? The man squared his shoulders, and the brothers could see that he was stockily built. I think you'll take my offer, he smiled. Or else. Harry, Sam, and Jack looked over at Albert, who slowly stood up and squared his own shoulders. From his place at the doorway, Perhaps the man had not noticed that Albert Warner was not just a large man, but possessing of a chest almost twice the width of his own, plus the arms to match. The man's smile slowly began to droop. I'll give you three seconds to get the hell out of our office, said Albert calmly, or I will throw you through the window. With that, Albert brought his fist down on the table with a colossal, deafening thump at which the man leapt ten inches into the air and fled for his life. In December of 1917, My Four Years in Germany held its premiere in New York City, where the Warner family gathered alongside a glittering array of notable and influential people, Gerard himself included, who watched from a box seat as the Warner's take on his book played out before him. A spellbound audience watched Gerard as he interviewed the German foreign minister, as the prison camps were opened for the first time, as British soldiers were liberated from barbed wire cages, 
as a Prussian officer tore a young girl from her parents' arms with an intent to sexually violate her. When it was over, a stunned crowd took to their feet in frenzied applause, not only for Gerard and his inflammatory tale, but for the four brothers who had brought his book to breathtaking life. One month and $1.5 million later, the Warner name was one of the most powerful in Hollywood. It was a boom time in Hollywood. The explosion of entertainment coming from the sleepy little town in California was enchanting the entire world. Even though to visit, you'd have been forgiven for thinking you had the wrong place. As the actress Agnes DeMille put it, the streets ran right into the foothills and the foothills straight into the sagebrush. Wild, wild hills where you could gather wildflowers by the armful. Hollywood residents used a disparaging word for these film people. They called them movies because they moved around a lot. They were really outcasts, but the locals found them amusing because they beat everybody on the heads with rubber clubs. The never-ending sunshine made it the perfect place to film westerns and adventure stories. Cowboys and Indians would fly past the city limits on horseback as families did their grocery shopping a few meters away. While at the other end of the street, sheiks on camels would cast a smoldering gaze into the horizon, anxiously wondering where they could find water. While just out of shot, housewives hung out their sopping laundry. Dashing young men of every race and creed, alongside fresh-faced girls of every kind, delicate and alluring, arrived each day on foot or by bus to become the next big thing, suitcases in hand, their dreams practically floating above their heads in bubbles. Vaudeville comics from all across America and Europe were arriving to follow in the hallowed footsteps of those who were fast becoming legend. Charlie Chaplin, Fatty Arbuckle, and Harold Lloyd. Flappers began to appear with their stark bobs and bangs and stories of city nightlife. The movie producer was emperor of his domain and revered as such. These were the men who could not only grant riches, but immortality to Hollywood's immigrants. If the face fit, or perhaps if certain favors were offered or honored, a girl or boy could walk into Hollywood and six months later be ambushed on the streets by desperately hysterical fans seeking autographs. They came from all over, these fans, clamoring to be near these gods and goddesses of the new cinematic art form. On buses, on trains, by car, on foot, each and every day their pilgrimage carrying them to Hollywood's sun-kissed streets where they would gather like birds at the studio gates, which had grown larger and more secure since this gold rush had begun. It wasn't uncommon to find dozens of fans being hauled from the roofs of the star's chauffeured cars, from the studio walls where they'd attempted to gain entry, from the homes of the stars themselves where they'd forced entry in the hopes of meeting their idols. And with the fans came money raining down on Hollywood in storms. And with the money 
power. And clambering up this mountain of wealth and influence, the Warner Brothers, who stood upon the broad shoulders of each other to climb higher than the others. Harry, still desperate to establish the Warner Studio as a purveyor of serious art, in and amongst the thrilling tales of suspense and romance, commissioned a series of instant classics. Main Street, based on the best-selling novel by Sinclair Lewis, the Beautiful and the Damned, F. Scott Fitzgerald's decadent tale of wild young things in the 1910s, and an adaptation of Little Johnny Jones, George M. Cohan's smash hit musical, each caused an explosion at the box office. The Warner stock continued to rise. Indeed, so much money had begun to flow into Warner features that they'd secured the services of Motley Flint a whip-smart executive with the Security Bank of Los Angeles who steered their financial situation through and around any impending trouble, including a mean streak of anti-Semitism that seemed to be plaguing Hollywood at the time. The producer, Joseph Schenk, was refused a loan from a California bank by a bank officer who, while in the process of turning him down, called Schenk a filthy kike. Years later, after Schenk had enjoyed many successes, he took himself back to the same bank and approached the same bank officer. Hi there. The kike wants to borrow 100 million from you. And what do you wish to use for security on this loan? asked the officer. My security will be 20th Century Fox Studios, said Schenk. Oh, <laughs> of course, stammered the officer. We would be only too happy to do business with you. You would, said Schenk. Why, yes, uh, yes, indeed, sir, replied the officer. Schenk leaned in close to the officer and growled, Well, fuck you. The modestly sized Warner studio grew fast to include offices and then more offices, workshops, a full props department and costume warehouse. A white-columned gate and gatehouse was erected, above which were displayed the fabulously large words Warner Brothers West Coast Studios. Their largest stage, built at a cost of $50,000, sprawled across the lot at the rear, its giant roof supported by 50 steel trusses. The staff was growing too. Harry Raff was hired as a producer to work alongside Jack and heading up their publicity, an idealistic young bruiser named Hal Wallace, who would eventually go on to become one of their top producers. Frank Murphy was hired to oversee the care of their technical equipment, now that it was collectively worth over half a million dollars. In April of 1923, Harry decided to turn their company into a corporation, with the four brothers retaining three-fifths of the controlling stock and renaming Warner Features to Warner Brothers Pictures. To celebrate this momentous event, a lavish banquet was commissioned to be held at the studio and with invites sent to every influential figure in town. All 60 of the Warner employees were given pride of place, alongside the brothers themselves, Motley Flint and Benjamin and Pearl Warner, who'd arrived with the rest of the Warner siblings. When the assembled throng had feasted upon the finest meats and cheeses, sparkling wines and ornate cakes, Motley Flint rose to his feet and called for silence. 
I first became interested in Harry, Albert, Sam and Jack when I saw the deep love they held for their parents. He held an arm towards Benjamin and Pearl, who glanced at each other bashfully. Further investigation proved to me that they were sincere and honest, Flint continued. I know that they are headed for a great success, and I am glad that I am supporting them artistically and financially, and I would like it known that I intend to continue to support them any time they need me. Applause followed Flint back to his chair. But as Harry began to shake Flint's hand and thank him for the words, the room was once more silenced by the sound of a glass being tapped. All eyes in the room turned to the sound, which was coming from the glass of Benjamin Warner, who nervously rose to his feet for the first time in his 66 years on earth to make a speech to a room of strangers. I do not come here to make a speech, he said, but now I have something I want to get off my chest. I hear two men talking today. They talk about my boys. One of them, I hear say, the Warners, they will never succeed in the film business. Why not, say the other man. They know the business. They are hard workers. Because, say the first man, they are too honest. Benjamin looked over at his sons, at Harry, the boy who never stopped trying his best for the family, at Albert, his brother's protector, at Sam, the boy with the big ideas and the big dreams, and at Jack, so full of energy and willing, his little dancer. This has been the greatest moment of my life, he said to their faces. To hear a man like Mr. Flint, the banker, say that he supports my boys because they are honest. Benjamin turned back to the room and placed a hand on Pearl's shoulder. I think it would be nice for me to make one exception to this being my greatest moment, he smiled. It would be best if I put my wedding day first. The room laughed and applauded, and before Benjamin could turn back to raise a toast to his sons, Harry, Albert, Sam, and Jack had reached him, and their arms were around him. The twenties continued on a wave of champagne bubbles. For the first half of the decade, the Warner Studios' biggest star, often referred to by Jack Warner as the mortgage lifter, wasn't even human. Harry Raff burst into Jack's office one winter afternoon and proclaimed that he had an incredible story for them to produce entitled Where the North Begins, the tale of a dog that's adopted by a pack of wolves in the snow-drunk wastes of Canada and who eventually saves a fur trapper's life. Sounds great, said Jack. Just one problem, though. We'd need a dog that can act. Ah, said Raph, holding up a finger and slipping to the door. Come in, Lee, he called. Moments later, Jack was presented with Lee Duncan, 
a stocky ex-soldier who nodded at Jack. At Duncan's heels was a burly German shepherd whose long maroon tongue hung from its mouth. Okay, said Jack. Talk me through this. This here is Lee Duncan, said Raph, patting Duncan's shoulder. And this, he said, motioning to the dog, is Rin Tin Tin. Jack raised an eyebrow. Nice looking animal, he said. Where'd you get it? In France, I found five puppies in a bombed out trench, said Duncan. Two of them I brought to California. Nanette didn't survive the trip. This one, though, was exceptionally easy to train. Jack leaned forward and stared down at the dog, who looked a little dumb to him. Does tricks? he asked. He obeys commands, said Duncan. He does, huh? said Jack. Well, okay, have the mutt do something. Duncan nodded, swallowed, and waved his hand. The dog transformed from a placid, panting spectator to a snarling, drooling menace. Slowly, it approached Jack's desk, his teeth bared and growling from deep within his chest. Jack leapt from his seat and flattened himself against the wall. Okay, okay, he said. Duncan gave a short whistle, and Rin Tin Tin returned to his side, wearing the same placid expression as before. Duncan then pointed to the chair that faced Jack's desk and made a curving action with his hand. Rin Tin Tin tensed and then jumped clean over the chair before resuming his obedient position at Duncan's feet. Where the North Begins played to jackpot houses and within weeks, Rin Tin Tin was receiving 12,000 pieces of fan mail every week. His pictures sent out to eager fans were autographed with a single paw print. Rin Tin Tin's salary grew to $1,000 a week, and Warner's biggest star was given his own mansion, his own orchestra, who were instructed to play soothing music to relax him after a day's shooting, was fed on nothing but prime T-bone steaks, and wore a diamond-studded collar to all social engagements. Such was his popularity that at the inaugural Academy Awards in 1929, Rin Tin Tin actually received the most votes for the Best Actor category. But wishing to establish the awards as a serious endeavour, the Academy withdrew the Rin Tin Tin votes, and the award was won by the actor with the second largest vote, Emil Yannings. As a studio in The Ascendant, they attracted the likes of Daryl Zanuck, Ernst Lubitsch, Mary Astor and John Barrymore to produce sweeping romances, dramas and thrillers. Harry and Albert were the money men, the salesmen and the financial thinkers who set about acquiring and building theatres around the country in which to show off the Warner movies to the world. Jack assumed the executive producer's seat, overseeing a select team of producers who brought forth their projects for approval. Sam Warner, though, preferred to keep his hands dirty. From the first, he'd been the man who loved to tinker, who loved to open up the machines to see how they worked, instead of admiring the magic with the rest of the audience. In mid-1925, Harry had swooped upon the ailing Vitagraph Studios, whose hits had been scanned, leading them to fall into almost a million dollars worth of debt. Harry, knowing a bargain when he saw it, agreed with Vitagraph's owners to pay off their debts, plus pay them a further $800,000 for Vitagraph's holdings. 
The purchase had seen the technical arm of Warner Brothers expand to become as powerful as that of any studio in Hollywood. Their studio space was effectively doubled overnight, as was their technology, and the quota of movies being pumped out under the Warner name swelled immediately from 40 per year to almost 100. When Sam Warner investigated the technical department of their new playground, he was instantly bewitched. Vitagraph's vaults revealed that they'd long been investigating the possibilities of sound as an entertainment medium. Sam, along with his chief electrician, Frank Murphy, approached Harry with an idea. What do you think about a radio station? he said. I don't quite know, replied Harry. Why don't you tell me what I should think? Jack immediately leaned forward in his seat. Radio's huge right now, Harry, he said. LA only has two stations, KNX and KFI, and they're both huge. Jack's right, said Sam. And all these stations do is play transcribed music. Murphy and I have been talking, and we think we can rig up a broadcasting station right here at the studio. To play music? asked Albert from behind his cigar. Sam shook his head and smiled. To promote our movies, he said. It'd be the first of its kind. We could commission a few scripts to be turned into audio dramas. We could have live orchestra performances from the studio theatre. Interviews with our stars. Hell, we could even record the goings-on while we shoot the damn films. People would love it. It's brilliant, said Jack, immediately looking to Harry, who stroked his chin thoughtfully. How much are we paying for radio advertising at the moment? Harry said to Albert. Too much, came the reply. What do you think? Albert looked over at Jack and Sam's eager faces. I think it's a go. Okay, said Harry. Buy one. A fortnight later, nine trucks arrived at the studio, along with an entire workforce from the Western Electric Company. Frank Murphy stood on his office porch, squinting at the site before him, and watched as Sam Warner hopped from one of the trucks. What am I supposed to do with all that? asked Murphy. Build a radio station, smiled Sam. How long will it take you? The Western Electric Engineers were called over and a few estimates were given. Probably about a month was the general consensus. You have a week, said Sam, who chewed the end of a cigar and left them to get to work. Six days later, WBC Radio was ready to begin broadcasting. Its initials stood for Warner Brothers Classics, and Sam was about to order a large sign to hang between their two new broadcasting towers when Benjamin paid a visit to the studio. Sam proudly showed his fascinated father over the new radio station, but when he told him about the call name, Benjamin frowned. This WBC, it's no good, said Benjamin. Should change it to KFWB. Why, Pop? asked Sam. Because that stands for Keep Fighting Warner Brothers. In the summer of that year, KFWB began broadcasting with a variety show featuring the voices of their hottest stars, along with specially commissioned music from their orchestra. It also included a performance from a certain former boy soprano, one 
Leon Zuardo, whose voice shook the listeners to their very core, with its unique shrillness and inability to hold a tune all the way through a life-threatening version of When the Red Red Robin Comes Bob Bob Bobbing Along. When the song was finished, Harry, Albert and Sam beckoned to Zuardo, actually Jack Warner himself, who'd been longing to perform again for years, and made him promise never to sing in public again. Despite this, KFWB soared to immense popularity almost immediately, displacing KNX and KFI as the most popular station in Los Angeles. To Sam Warner, it proved a theory that had long been gestating in his mind, that the world was hungry for sound. It wasn't as though Sam was up against much competition when it came to making the silver screen talk. Most movie studio heads were quite content with silent films, preferring the purity of images without explanation, as well as the fact that they could sell silence the world over. D.W. Griffith, perhaps the most respected movie director alive at the time, came straight out and called the idea of sound professional suicide. At his estimate, only 5% of the world's cinema-goers spoke English, and by that reckoning, English-speaking films would mean that 95% of the world market was gone. Even Harry wasn't keen on the idea, calling it a foolish endeavour. Albert also stated quite plainly that talking pictures are the bunk. Perhaps if Sam had faced opposition from all three brothers, then his experiments would have remained just that. But Jack was right behind him, as always. As far back as when they were kids, Sam and Jack had always been the closest of the four, often defending each other against the sometimes overbearing Harry. You mean the audience will be able to hear the singer? Of course you should make that happen. You need me to lie for you? No, said Sam. I'm not doing anything wrong. I just know that Harry thinks it's a waste of time. It's not a waste of time, said Jack. And when you've made it work, I want you to film me singing for Ma and Pa so that they can have me there entertaining them at home whenever they like. Perhaps when they have dinner guests who won't leave, said Sam. Exactly, replied Jack. Each day, Sam would journey to Western Electric, who, in conjunction with Bell Telephone Laboratories, were hard at work developing a new sound synchronization system. Nathan Levinson, the man heading up the team, was no stranger to Sam. Just a year earlier, he'd been one of the lead technicians working on KFWB. Sam watched several demonstrations, including a man facing the camera, repeating the words cheese and crisps, followed by another man sat at a piano and playing the notes carefully. Sam was enchanted. Not only could he hear the music from the piano, but also when the man cleared his throat, the creak of the piano stool, the violin of another man who joined at his side. It was like being in the room with these people. And for the first time in a long time, Sam felt the urge to walk to the screen itself and touch it, just to make sure that it was actually a screen and not some room behind a window. He called Harry and demanded that he come to a demonstration, which the following afternoon he duly did. At Harry's side was a short but sizable man 
wearing a pair of round spectacles and an exhausted blue suit. Who's that? asked Sam. He's from the bank, replied Harry. They sent him along with me to stop me making any foolish investments. Sit him in front of me, said Sam, so that I can grab him from behind when the contracts come out. But Sam's ambush wasn't necessary. Harry and the banker sat together on the front row and watched the same demonstration that Sam had seen, the pianist, the violinist, and the man talking about cheese and crisps. Harry was impressed with the quality, but not completely sold. The banker at his side, however, was rendered positively infantile by the demonstration. Wonderful, he said, gazing up in wonder at the screen. It's, it's wonderful. This little overweight man that had come to ensure that Harry didn't make any hasty moves was spellbound. And if he was hypnotized by it, thought Harry, then what would it do to the general public? Their first sound film, they decided, would star their biggest human draw, the eminent John Barrymore, opposite the luminous Mary Astor in the swashbuckling romance Don Juan. Harry's only stipulation was that they didn't jump right into talking pictures. Instead, he wanted to test the medium gradually. Let's devote our energy entirely to music, he told his brothers. All we'd be doing is taking what the audience is already accustomed to, background music with their movies, and making it easier for the theatre owner. Think what it would mean to a small independent owner to buy his orchestra with his picture. Nobody would have to have a piano or an organ or hire an organ player. He'd never have to put out any extra money for musicians. Everybody's building 5,000-seat theatres, motion picture palaces, they call them, and investing enormous amounts of money. And then, what's everyone doing to keep the theatres up to standard? They're hiring big orchestras and big acts just to keep an audience interested before the movie starts. And it's costing a lot of money. They need something new. That's why I think we should own this business from the beginning. No one else has even got a handle on this yet. We'll provide the musical accompaniment. Sam raised an eyebrow and sighed in disappointment. I think you're wrong, said Jack. We can make the pictures talk. They should be talking. You're right, said Harry, to their surprise. But I want to do this slowly. Let them come to us and ask us to make the pictures talk once the technology has proved itself. Sam and Jack swapped glances. Okay, they both said. Let's do it, said Albert. What are we going to call this thing, this sound thing? It needs a name. We just closed the deal with Vitagraph, said Sam. Maybe we can use something like that, Vita something. How about Vitaphone, suggested Jack. Living voice, it literally means living voice. How did you get so smart, asked Harry. Jack smiled. By leading a different life to yours, dear brother. Sam was given the task of creating a functioning sound department at the old Vitagraph Studios, and he willingly threw himself into the project. He also took a few days off and married an 18-year-old dancer named Lena Basquette. Basquette had been a child star throughout the 1910s, starring in her own series of films for Carl Lemley's Universal Studios, driven ever onwards by her domineering mother, Gladys. Her father, Frank, 
a drugstore owner in San Mateo, California, had been relegated to a supporting role in his family's life once Lena had become pretty enough to charm the Universal executives at the age of nine. Overnight, Gladys turned from pushy mother to emperor of the basket domain, regularly screaming down Frank's objections to his daughter's 20-hour working days. Finally, humiliated and defeated, her father Frank took an overdose and checked out of their lives, as well as his own. A few months later, Gladys married a dance director, Ernest Belcher, and both poured themselves into making Lena a star. At the age of 16, Lena was snapped up by Florence Ziegfeld to become one of his legendary Ziegfeld girls. I was a ballerina with the most beautiful legs in the world, she said later. Flo Ziegfeld loved long, beautiful dolls with long legs, very slim, for his follies. I was a little more buxom than the average, so he had to have me flattened down. It was while she was dancing in Ziegfeld's show that she'd been spotted by the 37-year-old Sam, who gazed at this bewitching teenager from his seat in the front row. Sam fell in love with me when he saw me over the footlights in a show called Louis XIV, said Lena. He sent me an orchid corsage with an invitation to dinner for both me and my mother, who was guarding me like the Holy Grail. I could never figure out whether he was courting me or my mother, as she was closer to him in age than still very beautiful. Everybody liked Sam. They thought he was a big Irishman. He loved to go out with the boys, watch baseball and basketball. He didn't drink, but he smoked a cigar now and then because everyone else did. He had sandy hair with flecks of grey and he was so tall. He always dressed in a three-piece suit. I couldn't help liking Sam. He had an amiable, outgoing personality. And while he seemed old, he was not unattractive. Sam approached Gladys one evening after dropping Lena at her door and told her that he wished to marry her daughter. How do you feel about having a Jewish son-in-law? He asked her. Never mind that, said Gladys. How are your family going to like having a Catholic sister? Sensing the benefits of marrying one of the most powerful men in Hollywood, Gladys sat her daughter down one afternoon and plainly told her, Lena, you are going to marry Sam Warner. The discussion was curt and acutely one-sided. By the time Gladys left her shocked daughter, the decision had been made. The wedding was set for July 4th, 1925, rushed into action by an eager Sam, who seemed desperate to put the tender Lena under his ownership, despite the fact that she'd never been intimate with a man. Sam never gave me a proper kiss until the night before we were married, she said. It scared the hell out of me. I didn't know anything about men and I felt his erection against me. I went to my mother after he left the apartment and said, Please, I don't want to get married. Let's just postpone the wedding. Postponing the wedding was not a part of Gladys' plan. And swatting away her daughter's concerns, she packed her off to bed with a stiff drink. The following day, Lena was taken by a chauffeur to the home of a rabbi, where the ceremony was performed with minimum fuss and maximum efficiency. Lena had brought with her her mother and stepfather. Sam had brought with him his best man, the banker Motley Flint, and no one else. Their reception was held at New York's Biltmore Hotel, and no expense was spared. 
mammoth chandeliers hung above the dancing guests, and sparkling silver trays of delicacies found their ways around the room, along with an unusually large number of coffee pots, from which was poured not steaming cups of coffee, but contraband whiskey. Prohibition was well underway at the time. Sam spent the evening admiring his dazzling bride in her chiffon dress, lined with lace and black velvet, while talking business with the guys he'd invited from the Warner's New York offices. Lena spent her evening dancing with her friends from the Follies, who massed themselves around her, tipsy and laughing, until they left the dance floor at 2 a.m. With the festivities done, Sam escorted the nervous Lena to Albert Warner's apartment on the 14th floor of the Congress Hotel, where they were due to stay the night. The trip gave Lena a chance to sober up a little and realize that she was about to become a woman, biblically speaking. By the time they reached the room, her hands were shaking violently at the prospect, and Sam had to sit on a couch and remove her shoes for her. They slipped from her feet to reveal that the seven or so hours of dancing she'd been engaged in had caused several lacerations across her toes, and her feet were streaked with blood. Somewhat relieved, Lena took herself into the bathroom and slowly cleaned the blood from her skin, then stole quickly into the bedroom and locked the door behind her. Lena had never felt quite so alone in her young life. The floor outside the door creaked slightly, followed by a timid knock. Lena, is everything okay? It's fine, Sam, she answered. I just need a minute. Is that okay? Of course, he said. Then added, I know how ridiculous this all seems, Lena, but please believe I love you. I, I'm, I'm in love with you. From the toes upward, I promise. Lena felt a hot tear run down her cheek and was suddenly overwhelmed by an urge to walk amongst a crowd of people, to dance with her friends, to sit in a noisy bar. She got up and crossed to the window, hauling it open and looked down at the sparkling lights and glorious chaos of New York City, 14 stories down. As she did, the tear fell from her face and hit her shoulder, and it was no longer hot, but ice cold, and she felt herself shiver. Very slowly, she lifted her leg up over the window ledge and hung it outside, and then the other leg until she was seated on the window ledge itself and she could see the sidewalk between her feet. She placed her hands on the windowsill and began to edge herself forward. Just a little push, she told herself. Just a little push. Outside the door, Sam waited patiently, his hands fidgeting. Lena, he called. Lena, we can take this as slow as you want to. I just want you to be happy. I know I'm not a matinee idol, but I adore you, Lena, and I want to make every day better than the last. 
I hope you'll give me the opportunity. Sam waited, but no reply came. From beneath the door, he could feel the stirring of a cold breeze. I'll, I'll take the guest room tonight, he said. You get some sleep, you need it, after all that dancing. Sam placed a hand on the door, and then turned and walked towards the bedroom opposite. From behind him, he heard the lock turn in the door, and he turned to see Lena in the doorway. She was naked, apart from a thin, golden necklace and a few faint streaks of mascara around the eyes. It's okay, Sam, she said. You can come in. To Lena's surprise, married life suited her incredibly well. For starters, she was free from her mother and the incessant pressure of dieting and physical exercise that her mother had insisted upon. She took up reading as a pastime, as well as sketching and cooking. Within a few months, Sam would regularly arrive home to find a giggling group of Lena's fellow Ziegfeld girls bunched around the dining table, sampling Lena's baking efforts. Sam would greet them with a smile, often getting their names wrong, then kiss his wife and leave them to each other. He's such a sweetie, Lena would be told often, and before long, she was in full agreement. Their evenings were spent in quiet intimacy. They would lounge on a sofa while Sam stroked the back of her hand with a finger and excitedly told her about the progress on Vitaphone. Before long, she knew the inner workings of this miraculous new system, and even made suggestions that Sam hadn't considered previously. Slowly, the protective frost around Lena's heart began to thaw, replaced by a warmth that she never imagined possible. And before she knew it, she was falling in love with this man, a man so much older than she was, who treated her like his best friend, who never talked down to her, or even so much as mentioned their age difference. They were two symmetrical souls in very different packaging that had somehow clumsily found each other. And now and then, when Lena would wake in the night and look over at the sleeping Sam, she thanked God that they had. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to continue this epic story immediately, then go on over now to patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Hear every thrill, every drama, every heartbreak, every spellbinding moment. Unlock the secret history of Hollywood now at patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. And thank you.